This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. I love this time of year. Spring is here, the grass is green, the days are getting longer. And with Easter coming and all the preparation going into it, the excitement and the anticipation of this time. But there's something else I love about this time of year. I love watching college basketball. Now, I've heard that this church has a reputation that we're not a sportsy church. We're maybe more bookish and artsy. And I say that's not true, at least not entirely. If there's one thing that Anglicans are known for, it's our athletic prowess on the... No, that's not true. But if there is one thing that Anglicans are known for, it's that we love to be both and whenever we can be. Why be either or when you can be both and? So it's not middle March or March Madness. You can read the book at halftime. It's not Michael Phelps or Michelangelo, whether it's the breaststroke or the brushstroke, we love it all. It's not opening day at Wrigley or opening night at the Lyric, we love them both. All right, now as a priest, I take my responsibility to catechize the children of this church very seriously. All right, so everybody 10 and under, I'm going to tell you, show you actually something very important, an important skill in the Christian life. I'm going to show you how to shoot a basketball. So you can do this sitting down or you can stand up if you're 10 or under in your seat where you're at. Okay, so take your shooting hand, right? I'm left-handed, so this is my shooting hand. Make a 90-degree box right here. Square up your feet and your shoulders. Now this is your guiding hand. Don't put it around front, and don't hold the ball with both hands. It guides. And then when you shoot, and I'm going to watch to see if you can do this, I want to see your follow-through. you got to get the gooseneck, all right? Let me see that gooseneck. You see that gooseneck? That's the fo- Let me see it. All right, there it is. Very important skill for every Christian to need to know how to do. All right, now the reason I love watching basketball is I love watching the teamwork. The best teams know you got to pass the ball around to get a better shot. The best teams know how to work together on defense to guard the basket. The best teams rejoice when one of the other players makes a great play. Even if it wasn't me, I rejoice when you made that play because together it moves us towards the goal. I was actually just reading about a team that was kind of mid-level, lower ranked in the tournament, Florida Atlantic, that made it all the way to the Final Four, which is very impressive. And they were known as a team, and the coaching strategy uh, was known for its unselfish playing and this respect for one another. One of the players said, it's probably the first team I've been on where really nobody cares about their individual stats. It's just a whole bunch of selfless guys just trying to get a win together. Another player said, it's pretty simple. It's how we talk to each other, how we respect each other, how we help each other. That's how we get the win. On Monday, Thursday, there are four key aspects of this service that we draw our attention to on this night. So it is the Last Supper where Jesus is about to go to the cross, and during the Last Supper, he washes the feet of the disciples, and we remember the humility of Jesus. Next, he he gives us communion. He tells them about a year prior, he had said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, you cannot have life in you. And undoubtedly, the disciples were wondering, okay, but how do we do that? Now on this night, he says, and here's how you do that. This is my body. This is my blood. So the second thing is the institution of communion. The third 
is the new commandment, love one another. Monday, Thursday, Monday from the Latin mandatum, which means commandment. Love one another as I've loved you. And the fourth aspect, as we get to the end of the service, we turn our attention to Jesus as he goes to Gethsemane. The sorrow, the anguish, his arrest, betrayal, and all those events that begin turning towards tomorrow and the cross. Of these four things, tonight we're going to focus on the command to love one another as Christ loved us. And as I was praying and saying, okay, Jesus, what is the specific word that you have for this church, this year, this night, through this verse? And here's what I think Jesus wants to tell us, resurrection. Just remember, resurrection, you're on the same team. You're on the same team. You're on the same side, fighting together towards the same goal. Your teammates. Tonight, what we're going to do is first we're going to look at this Bible story and we're going to understand the new commandment, what Jesus meant, why it's so important. And then we're going to ask ourselves what does washing each other's feet, what does it mean to love one another um, in our context today? So let's take a moment to offer up this time in prayer. Pray with me. Father, would you pour out your spirit now, and by your holy word, would you cleanse and sanctify us? Would you also edify us, build us up, give us a vision of the church that you want us to be? And since this is out of our power to grasp this and certainly to do it, let the grace of your Holy Spirit enable us to love as you have commanded. We pray this for the love and honor of your name. So open your Bibles to John chapter 13, and look with me now to verse 31. They're in the upper room. This section is called the Upper Room Discourse. It goes from chapter 13 to the end of 17. In verse 31 of chapter 13, it says, Now when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him, and if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and do this at once. Who is he referring to when he says he had gone out? Talking about Judas. So the foot washing had already happened, followed by a, a conversation where Jesus said, one of you will betray me. He identifies Judas as the one, and he says to Judas, what you are to do, go and do quickly. And Judas leaves, and now Jesus says, now's the time. This is going to happen at once. He understands that with the departure of Judas to go get the chief priests, things have been set in motion that now cannot be reversed. Jesus will die, and he will die soon. The clock is ticking, and he only has a few moments to impart to his disciples his final instructions, his most important words. Look at verse 33, the beginning of the uproom discourse. Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I say to you also, where I'm going, you cannot come. A theme throughout the uproom discourse is Jesus' departure. He knows he's leaving soon. He knows that everything is about to change for the disciples. The supper is called the Last Supper because it is the last experience of normal that these disciples will ever have. Up till now, Jesus had been with them. If they had a question, they could ask him. 
They could depend on his leadership and his instructions. They could let him do all the heavy lifting. And it is true that when the Holy Spirit comes, that's all still true. Jesus leads. He's the one doing the heavy lifting. But it's a lot easier to remember that when Jesus is standing in front of you in the flesh. Jesus knows, though the disciples do not, everything they've come to rely on as normal life with Jesus is going away. And pretty soon they're going to feel like Alice in Wonderland tumbling down the rabbit hole. They're going to experience intense trial, unimaginable sorrow, and a complete disorientation. And even though he will come back from the dead and will meet with them, his resurrection appearances will be few and far between and brief. And in just a few weeks, he will ascend to the Father, and they will see him no more. Jesus knows everything is about to change for them. And yes, he assures them, though they don't understand it in this moment, the Holy Spirit is coming, so I will not leave you as orphans. But the experience of being with Jesus physically in the flesh that they've known for three years is now about to go away. And in the coming days of intense trial, when the fellowship will be on the verge of breaking, when the foundation of the coming kingdom is at a vulnerable and critical stage, Jesus is now at pains to impress upon them the importance of loving one another. And in Luke's version of the gospel, when Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him, he also says, but you will turn back. And when you do, the first thing I want you to do, Peter, strengthen your brothers. The first thing Jesus said to Peter, when you come back, strengthen your teammates. Get them together. Don't let isolation creep in. Don't let distance or cool indifference set in. Don't let camps form. Peter, get them together and remind them they're on the same team. And here in John's Gospel, the upper room discourse, these final words of Jesus, his most important instructions before everything is about to change, begins with the new commandment to love one another and ends with Jesus' prayer for the unity of the church that we would be one. Look at verse 34 now. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The word for love here is the Greek word agape, and it means deep level of affection and intimacy. A deep level of affection and intimacy for one another. We also know from later in the Upper Room Discourse that Jesus says this love is also the kind of love that will say, I will lay down my life for you. And of course, we have the example of the cross on the one side and the washing of the feet on the other to show us that this love is self-sacrificing and it is humble. The love that Christians are to have for one another, therefore, is to be deeply affectionate and intimate, sacrificial, and humble. That's what it means to be on this team. Read to you from uh, the Florida Atlantic uh, players earlier, and just recall, one of the players said, this is the first time I've been on a team where it really was more about the team 
than individual star players. And as you read about this team, the other teams knew this about Florida Atlantic. They had a reputation. It set them apart. It was unique. It was identifiable. And Jesus said, the way you love each other, it's supposed to be like that. True, we are to love all people, but it's specifically our love for one another, our love for our brothers and sisters in the Lord that Jesus says will be the key marker and identifier that we belong to him. Now, Jesus calls it a new commandment. Why new? Weren't there already the two greatest commandments, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love neighbor as ourself? Wasn't that already given? And yes, that's true. And even earlier that week, Jesus had said, yes, those are the two greatest commandments. But notice, he doesn't say love your neighbor as yourself, does he? He says, love one another as I have loved you, and that's what makes it new. The standard is not how I love. The standard is now how Jesus loves. The command to love your neighbor as yourself is to say, I want you to love with the very best love that a human can give. But the command to love as Jesus loves is to say, I want you to love with the very best love that God can give. And immediately we recognize that's a higher standard. In fact, that's impossible. I can't do that. That's why Jesus waited till the very end to give the new command in closest possible proximity to the cross because he also knew that it would be impossible for his followers to fulfill this command without the cross. The cross shows us the perfect love of God. It demonstrates, reveals, it gives us a picture, and that's one part of it. But the other part of it is this. Here is why you need the cross in order to be able to obey this new commandment. The cross is not just an example, but it is by the ministry of the cross that you are cleansed from sin, healed from your distance and separation from God, and that enables God to be poured into your heart. God himself poured into your heart through the cross. We can now be filled with the Spirit of God who teaches us how to love as Jesus loved, who shows us the love of God and what it would look like in each and every situation that we're in. This is what love looks like now. But the Spirit doesn't only teach us and show us, but the Spirit is, in fact, the love of God dwelling in our hearts. So Jesus understood that his new command was impossible without the cross and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But now we can do what formerly was impossible. And truly, there's no greater miracle than to love as Jesus loves. It's greater than healing the blind. It's greater than raising the dead. To to love as Jesus loves us is the greatest miracle. Now, to say that we can do the impossible doesn't mean we always will. We need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. And one of my prayers for our church for this night and for this week 
is that there would be a renewal of that deep affection and intimacy, that sacrificial, humble love for one another given to us in a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, because we need that. We always need that. But we need that especially now. Now, as grand and, and powerful as all that sounds, often the way that this love is experienced is through small and everyday but meaningful ways. Let me give you a few examples of things that I've seen just lately here at Resurrection, of how we're doing this. Some time ago, it was a Sunday morning after the service had concluded, and I looked over and I saw some young people talking to some folks who were older than them, and the difference between them was probably about five decades age difference. And they were talking together, and they looked like they were friends. And I looked again five minutes later, and they were still talking. And I went over them to see this thing. And I said, Do, are you related? Like, why are you so friendly? And they said, well, they always sit there, and we always sit here. And after the service, we, we just talk. And I just thought, where else does that happen? Where friendship between people who would have nothing else to do with each other, five decades apart, just because you sit there and I sit here, and because they know we're on the same team. And so I'm going to talk to you when the service is done and get to know you and keep doing that. One of my favorite things in my role is I get to visit res groups. And just this year, earlier I was at a res group of young people, and I arrived at the apartment building at the same time as some of the young women were arriving. And as the leader was coming down the stairs, they started chanting his name. <laughs> this is great. Then we're in, and we're eating the chili that he made, and everybody's agog. They're like, and he's, I just, I made it up, I, you know. And they loved reading the Bible together. It was so clear that they, who none of them had known each other before being put together in that group, enjoyed one another, and they're cheering each other on because they understood we're on the same team. Or in another res group, I'm visiting and they split men and women. I'm with these six other men and for an hour and a half they listen so beautifully and pray so powerfully because they understand I'm for you. I'm on your side and that's what this looks like. That's what being on your side looks like is I'm going to spend a better part of my Sunday evening praying for you. It was beautiful to be in that fellowship. Or another group where there's a young man who has certain limitations on his life, things he can't do. One thing he can do is he can host. And he loves to host his res group, and his group loves him. And I see that, and it's beautiful to me. Our ministries like Harbor, Replanted, or Thrive, where our leaders work so hard to facilitate connection and encouragement. Or TI, where a whole year you've got four to six people that you're in a listening group with. I mean, talk about intimacy. And if there's any ministry that evokes for me the majesty and the wonder of Division I collegiate basketball, it is the Altar Guild. You want to you see hustle? You want to see commitment? Join the Altar Guild. All right, so small, meaningful ways where I see the love of Jesus in this place. And of course, there's more that I could mention. But like a good coach, Jesus will not only point out what we do well, but also say, I've got some ideas for improvement. He said, love one another. And he gave us the example of washing feet. Now, the disciples had the advantage of they could literally wash each other's feet because that was a part of their everyday experience and a real way they could humbly serve one another. That's not a part of our daily life anymore. So we have to translate. What does that mean? And as I was thinking on this, it could mean many things. 
But in our current climate, washing feet looks like being gracious with one another. Washing feet looks like being gracious with one another, especially in our speech. So let's take a few minutes at the end here just to remind ourselves how to be gracious with one another, especially in our speech. Being gracious means we give the benefit of the doubt. We don't assume the worst about somebody's intentions or what they mean. We actually work to assume the best. We avoid negative interpretation. It's so easy and it's natural as humans to fill in voids or, or a vacuum or things that we're not sure, to fill that in with a negative, inter- oh, I'm sure this is what they meant or what's going We avoid negative interpretation. That's what it means to be gracious. It means to be slow to draw conclusions, careful about jumping to conclusions. It means we avoid being picky about the precise words that others are using. We really try to understand, what do you mean? What are you meaning? And I'm not going to nail you to the wall for the precise words you're using. Also, Christians are slow to take offense. Christians are slow to take offense. And not only do we not jump to conclusions, but this one's really hard, takes a lot of humility. We actually have an accurate sense of when it's even my place to have a strong opinion and form a judgment about something or not. Oftentimes it's not. It's just not relevant to our lives. It's not something we'd have to have a strong opinion about. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. When it comes to disagreement, we resist the temptation to cut people off, to write them off, and to just ignore them. We can't do that because we're on the same team. And instead, when there is a disagreement, we go to someone with openness, with curiosity, with questions, ready to listen and really trying to understand. And even if at the end of the day, I still disagree with you about this, we can do that graciously. There's always a way to be gracious. And when it comes to sensitive or controversial topics, it's the end of the sermon. Let's just open a can of worms right now. Let's talk about schooling and parenting. A very sensitive topic. People don't like talking about it. We have to talk about these things graciously. But we do have to talk about them. I want to know, what's your parenting style? How are you leading your family? What are the decisions you're making about educating them and, and, and why? I want to know. And I want you to ask me and say, Brett, why don't you, Julie, do what you do? These are important conversations. We have to talk deeply about matters that matter. But we have to do that with grace. And the underlying attitude has to be whatever you decide, I just want you to know, I've, I've got your back. I'm on your side. I'm rooting for you. And even if you choose differently than I choose, I want you to succeed. In fact, I need you to succeed in raising your kids for the kingdom of God. And I bless you. And I'll do whatever I can to serve you and encourage you. And this applies, this principle applies to every and any controversial or difficult matter that is of substance. Things that we need to talk about 
as the family of God. We have to edify one another and encourage one another. It needs to be talked about, but we can do that graciously. Don't you want to be gracious? Doesn't even just thinking about being gracious feel so good? It's a great way for us to live out and recognize, hey, we're on the same team. At that last supper, Jesus looked out on his disciples and he said, love one another. This is the most important thing for you to know. This is what is going to carry you through the next few days. This is what's going to carry you, the church, through the next few millennium until you see my face again. Love one another as I have loved you. And as Jesus looked out on his disciples that night, he's here this night looking out on you, resurrection, and saying, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us first with an immeasurable, eternal, infinite love so that we can now love one another. Lord, we want the world to see what real love is like. We want you to be glorified and honored in our midst by the way we treat one another. Forgive us when we've not obeyed your command. Fill us anew with your Holy Spirit now this night and through these three days that we might be a new people on Monday morning, more able by the power of your Spirit to love as you have commanded. We know you want to do this, and so thank you for hearing this prayer that we make through your holy name. Amen.